0: You're listening to A Stranger Podcast. www.thestranger.com
1: If you're stuck in a relationship quandary Or if you're looking for sexual harmony Well, there's nothing you can't ask On the Savage Love Cast Happy Valentine's Day. Fuck first. For years in my column, I would run... Uh, This thing at the end called Straight Rights Watch. And I was just really tracking these rumblings on the far right, the religious right – uh, of the coming war on contraception that it, for most people – and some of my readers would write back just wondering why I was wasting all my time doing this. Most people regarded the debate over contraception as essentially over. It was even accepted in mainstream republican circles. Remember mainstream republican circles? They don't really exist anymore but they were a thing once upon a time. That birth control was good and if you wanted to bring down the abortion rate, which of course right-wingers are saying they want to do – providing people with birth control and access to birth control and easing access to birth control is a really effective way to bring down the abortion rate and the teen pregnancy rate. Go fucking figure, right? And I would point out that they're coming for birth control, that they're coming. Here they come. They're they're reframing the debate over birth control as a debate over abortion, that birth control pills are abortion, that they hurt women just like they claim that access to abortion hurts women. And they're coming for birth control and I was really vindicated in the 2011-2012 Republican primaries when Rick Santorum burst to the front of the pack at the end of the primary season as the sort of religious right, social conservative hero and he was saying that he would, if elected president, fight access to birth control because birth control, according to Rick Santorum and I'm quoting, gives people the right to do that which they should not do, which is to have recreational sex, which is, of course, most of the sex most people have most of the time. Over the course of a person's life, that person will have sex many, 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 many times and only have a handful of children. Anyway, there was Rick Santorum coming out against birth control and it it may seem a little weird and irrelevant to bring Rick Santorum up. Now we live in Obama 2.0 America. It is – Morning still. Here we are. The second inauguration just happened and they've all been, you know, thrown off and cast aside the social conservatives. No, not really. Rick Santorum is running around the country talking, talking, talking. He's on the Sunday morning talk shows. He's running for president in 2016 and it may seem like we can laugh him off and laugh off his anti-birth control horseshit. But – and Rick Santorum brings this up and I'm going to bring it up too – As he likes to tell people, as he likes to point out, as we're going to hear from Rick Santorum again and again and again in the run-up to 2016, he won 11 primaries and then lost to the guy who lost to the Democrat. You know who else won 11 primaries and then lost to the guy who lost to the Democrat and then came back four years later and won the Republican nomination and then won the White House? Rick Santorum knows and he's going to make sure every Republican primary voter in the country knows by 2016. That other person who won 11 primaries, lost to the nominee, who then lost to the Democrat, who then came back and won the White House, Ronald Reagan. Rick Santorum thinks God is sending him a sign and the Republican base a sign that he is the second ejaculation of Ronald Reagan. And so we're going to have this birth control debate again. And it's still percolating out there. They are still Honing and crafting their anti-birth control arguments on the far lunatic right, which Rick Santorum represents and speaks for and is the, the perfect distillation of. And just last week, Right Wing Watch, which is a terrific website, rightwingwatch.org, put up a tape of a right-wing batshit radio host named Kevin Swanson on Generations Radio. It's a Christian radio program, far right-wing batshit nut job Christian, not regular old mom and dad Christian, talking about birth control. And why we need to protect women from birth control. And here's what Kevin had to say.
2: I'm beginning to get some evidence from certain doctors and scientists that have done uh, research on uh, women's wombs. And uh, after they've gone through the surgery. And they've compared the wombs of women who were on birth control pill versus those who were not on the birth control pill. And they have found... That with women who are on the birth control pill, there are these little tiny fetuses, these little babies that are embedded into the womb. They're just like dead dead babies. They're on the inside of the womb.
1: And these wombs of women who have been on the birth control pill effectively have become graveyards for lots and lots of little babies. So certain scientists and certain researchers have determined that women who use birth control are walking graveyards. They're just filled with little baby bones. That's why your sister sounds like marachas when she walks down the stairs. It's all the little baby bones rattling around in her uterus. And it's, of course, just this overweening concern for the health of women and their baby bone clogged junk that prompts Kevin to want to ban – birth control and prompt someone like Rick Santorum to want to campaign against access to birth control. Also, as Kevin went on later in the same show to say, uh, he doesn't believe that women should fight uh, the role that God, quote, put them on earth for, which is to shit babies as many as possible. And Kevin feels it's a problem when, quote, women seek to desire the men's role and then they lose their part. And the idea of what children does, he said, not just for the kingdom and not just does with their family, but does for their gender role. This is your job, ladies. You're not supposed to be walking fetus graveyards, making your own choices about when and whether you will have children, having sex if that's what you wish to do. No, 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 no. You are here to perform a particular gender role that God created you for, which is baby shitter. Shit babies. Don't be a walking baby graveyard. Shit babies. What they really want to do is bring Margaret Atwood's terrific, terrifying novel, The Handmaid's Tale, to life. If you haven't read it, it's a couple decades old. Go get your hands on it, youngsters, and read it. This is what they want to do, ladies. And let me just say, you know, Rick Santorum is going to be back in 2016. These motherfuckers, we didn't defeat them once and for all and forever. Canada got the French. Australia got the convicts. We got the Puritans. We are stuck with them. We're going to have to push – we're going to have to pay attention. We're going to have to have a straight rights watch and pay attention to these motherfuckers and push back. What mystifies me finally – and I'll say this and I'll shut up and we'll get to your calls – about this, oh, women must be making as many babies as possible. Is this, the number of human beings on this planet went from one billion – in 1800 to 7 billion today and we are on track to hit 15 billion human beings on this planet by the end of this century it seems to me that ladies you could take a century or two off at this point and just enjoy sex for the fun of it and cut way the fuck back on the numbers of babies you're having that this fruitful and multiply thing You're done. Job well done. Fifteen billion. Okay. Enough already. You would think at this stage that even right-wing Christian nuts would say, okay, maybe we can – maybe we've given God everything he asked us to give. We have fruited and multiplied like fucking crazy and we can relax and take a birth control pill or wear a condom and cut the fuck back on the numbers of human beings. We are shitting out all over this planet together. But no – No, 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 no. Because what this is really about is gender slavery. This is really about a terrified little man, Kevin Swanson, and his terrified little man friends looking at ladies and saying, no, 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 no. Your role is supposed to be in the home shitting my baby, sitting on my dick, not competing with me out in the workforce, out in the world, not being your own person. You're one of those persons I'm supposed to own and control. That's why they're after your birth control. That's why we have to pay attention. That's why we have to fight. And we will be fighting Rick Santorum and on this issue too in 2016. Your call up for this. This episode is brought to you by adamandeve.com. For limited time only, Adam and Eve will let you pick three free adult DVDs with your order. Just go to adamandeve.com and enter savage at checkout. This podcast is brought to you by audible.com, the internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to com slash savage.
0: Hi, Dan. I'm a young lesbian, and I just wanted to get your perspective on this. I came out to my parents when I was 13. It really wasn't a big deal. Um, we had maybe some really awkward conversations, like, are you sure you don't like boys? Afterwards, but so anyways, I'm 16 now, and just recently I was like, oh, I want to have one of my other lesbian friends over for a sleepover. And the parents were kind of weird about it. They were like, well, why do you want to have a sleepover so badly? And my dad was like, well, I just, I'm worried about your hormones and getting out of my control. I mean, my friend has a girlfriend. You know, I just, I was just wondering why, um, I've known her since sixth grade. She's been my friend. Like, I don't want to sex her (laughs) ever. And is this some sort of, like, internalized homophobia? I just want to get your parents' perspective on this and what you would do in this situation. Okay, thanks.
1: Bye. Don't pretend to be naive, young lady. You want the parents' perspective? Okay, here it is. Don't play me like this. Don't pretend to be naive. If you were straight and you wanted a boy to come sleep over and your parents cleared their throats... And objected and didn't seem so into that idea. Why do you think that might be exactly? Because your parents, because you're 16, don't think you're ready for sex, don't want you having sex under their roof, don't want you having sleepovers with a potential sex partner. So they're only treating you with equality, right? They're only treating you and this other girl, both lesbians, the same way they would treat you if you were a straight girl and you were having a boy who wasn't your romantic partner necessarily but was straight and you were a straight girl, they probably wouldn't bless that. They probably wouldn't be so into that. And for the same reason, they're not so into this because they don't want you having hot, hot, sweaty lesbian sex in their house and you assuring them that, oh, she's my old friend and, yes, she's a lesbian too, but we're not doing it. I don't want to sex her ever. Like that assurance only takes you so far because your parents – aren't idiots and they know that you would say that whether it was true or not and they have no way of reading your mind and knowing for certain that it is true that you are not actually attracted to this girl and you guys aren't actually doing it or if you're just saying that so that your parents will allow her to sleep over and then you guys can actually do it in their house. Now, as a parent – and as a human being and a sex writer and somebody who thinks about this shit, you look at what happens in saner places about sex. A lot of places, Holland for instance, the Dutch parents typically will allow their high school age kids to have sleepovers with their sex partners, with the girls and boys that they're dating and they can have sex in their house because Dutch parents are brilliant and you can read interviews. See, there's a actually a great interview with a Dutch parent about it on YouTube that I watched where she's she's just like, well, if I don't want them – fucking in the park or fucking in a car, what am I supposed to do? They're going to fuck and it's pretty smart. But American parents, myself included perhaps, are a little more uptight about these things. What's weird for the queer kids is that this whole prohibition on sleepovers with your sex partners and your parents trying to keep you from becoming sexually active for as long as possible is really grounded in a fear of pregnancy, of unplanned teen motherhood. That, you're not at any risk for. So in some way, your parents are reacting to the possibility that you may fuck this girl if you have a sleepover at your house uh, from this place of sort of paranoia, vestigial paranoia that you may get knocked up somehow and maybe if you draw them out on the subject and you guys really address what's going on here, your parents may see how ridiculous they're being in some respects. In other respects though you kind of got to respect what it is your parents are doing. They're treating you the same way they would treat you if you were straight. If you were straight, they wouldn't let you have boys sleep over. right? And there you are. You're out. You're a lesbian. They said some douchey things, right? If you came out, you sure you don't like boys? All parents do. You let that go. You forgive them. But now they're treating you the way they would treat you if you were straight. You're a lesbian and they're not so into you having another lesbian. Come and spend the night. For the same reasons they wouldn't be into you having a boy, come and spend the night if you were a straight girl because they don't want you fucking anybody in their house. Equality, right? Equal treatment. That's what we wanted. We always said we want to be treated equally. We want, I said to my mom, I want you to treat me just the same as you would treat my siblings and I wasn't prepared for what that meant in the end. That meant mom meddled and argued and got in my face about shit. She thought that I was doing wrong or Terry and I were doing wrong. She treated us just the same. Welcome. Welcome to my world. Welcome to equality. Thank your parents for treating you equally and uh, if you are fucking this girl, you're going to have to fuck her on the sly, not mom and dad's house.
3: Hi, Dan. Um, I'm calling from Chicago and I'm calling about my 11 year old daughter um, who, you know, I love, I love, I love. She's so wonderful. I think she is at 11. I know it's early, but I think she's toying around with her sexuality. She says a lot of stuff about how she doesn't want to get married and she never wants to have kids. And, you know, I, I guess I'm worried. I'm not worried for her. I'm worried that she's not giving the support that she needs you know, to to be herself. Um, she's persecuted pretty mercilessly by the girls at her middle school. Um, and we try to support her whenever we can. We tell her she's beautiful and she's smart and she's wonderful and we love her no matter what. And it doesn't matter, guys, if we ever get married. Um, and, and, you know, it, who she is is more important to us than anything else. Um, and, you know, frankly, I don't care who she loves as long as she's okay with herself i just you know i'm worried we're not doing enough i don't know if i should have a conversation with her um you know about that we've talked about sex but you know we sort of talked about sex in the traditional hetero kind of thing that's the environment we're growing up in so i don't know um any advice you can offer um i threw a bunch of money at it gets better cuz i'm worried she's going to need that later on
1: my first reaction to your call, you said she's toying around with her sexuality and the actual truth when you're 11, 12 years old is your sexuality is toying around with you. It's not that somebody <laughs> says, I think I'm going to make an erector set of my sexuality today and play Legos with my sexuality. Like your sexuality is revealed to you by your own body, by your own erotic imagination, by your nuts, by your ovaries. It's un- it is presented to you really. It-, it unfolds and you have to explore usually to get an idea of where it is and where you're going but your daughter's sexuality is toying with her and not the other way around. Okay. (laughs) And you say you've had no conversations about that. You've had the sex talk. She's 11. You never – in this entire call where you're basically dancing around the possibility that your daughter may be a lesbian or bi, you never say lesbian or bi or gay or anything. You say it gets better and you gave – it gets better some money and we appreciate that. Of course. Have you ever said the word lesbian, bi – Queer, trans, gay in front of your daughter. If you feel, if you can't say it in front of me on my in my ears, uh,
3: in in conversations with her, I, I, I feel like I'm failing as a mother. No, no, you're uh, not,
1: no, no, no. You are not failing as a mother. You are talking about this stuff. It's hard. This you. This is you succeeding as a mother. That you made the call. and We're having the conversation. Okay.
3: I'm Yes. and, And I've used the word lesbian in front of her. We've talked about gay people in front of her. I have not specifically asked her if she thinks she is a lesbian
1: you don't have to ask that your kids way. if you think they're lesbian. Particularly, you know, some kids <laughs> yeah, are being God bullied. Forbid. <laughs> you know? Some kids are being bullied for being, you know, perceived to be queer. They might not even mm-hmm. realize that they're queer yet or have a full understanding of what it might mean for themselves to be queer. And so having their parents who sometimes know even before they do say, "You're queer, right?" can make them feel like they're also being bullied by their parents. Right. But it is right, which important I don't want to do. right, you don't want to do, but it is important for you to broach the subject. Particularly if she's saying, "I'm never going to get married, I'm never going to have children." Mm-hmm. She's testing you, I think, and saying these things that are expected of straight women, I'm not going to do those things. What do you think, Mom? And I think at those moments you need to have sort of an open ended conversation about, well, you're eleven, you might be gay when you grow up, you might be a lesbian, you might be bi, you could be anything. Like right now your sexuality is, like I said, unfolding. You know, you're you're growing into it. And you might want to get married, you might not want to get married. A lot of people when they're young say they don't want to get married. Because they don't – like what adults do or zicky or looks weird and marriage is something adults do. And so they'll say, I'm never going to get married. As a way of saying this sexuality that I'm sort of coming into is scary and so I'm going to shove it off or write it off and say it's never going to happen to me because I'm never going to get married. And so you just need to have kind of like an open-ended conversation with her. You let her direct and you draw her out. You don't say, are you a lesbian to your daughter? <laughs> but what you do say to your daughter, as I said to my son, is you might be straight. You might be gay. Either or. Doesn't matter. Both good. You might be bi, also fine. The odds are – and you can give her the odds. You know, the odds that you're going to be lesbian are very small. A very tiny percentage of women are lesbians. And just hearing that might be a comfort to her if she's struggling with some anxiety about it, if she doesn't really want to be a lesbian. Sometimes knowing that the odds are small even if that kid does turn out to be a lesbian can be a temporary comfort along the lines of – And
4: that's uh, – Oh,
1: I'm
3: sorry. That's really good advice because when she's asked me these things or or said – made these statements – her response and, or my response and her father's response is always, you know, that's fine. You're 11. You have your whole life to make decisions. Don't say that. But we've never really said you could be this, you could be this, or you could D- be
1: this. You don't want to say you have your whole life to make decisions, dot, dot, dot. And if you make that decision, we'll be crushed. She may think that even if right. it's not true. Right There's a lot of homophobia that splashes right. around in the culture that a kid can pick up on. She's saying things to you like, I'm never going to get married. I'm never going to have kids, in part to see what how you'll react and what you'll say. And if what you say right. is you have your whole life to make your decisions, that seems so bizarrely neutral that a kid could really have a negative read of that and, and infer negativity know, and where don't, you don't mean it.
3: Absolutely not because I – I want her to be happy. I don't care who she is. She is my baby and I love her to death.
1: Okay, and so you need to say to her not just you're my baby, I'll love you whatever. If you commit mass murder one day, I'll stand by you. Like <laughs> she may co- she may come up with ways to frame that very negatively. You have to frame it positively. You know, right. I have friends who are lesbians and I love them and you know you most kids grow up to be straight but some kids grow up to be gay or lesbian or bi or trans and whatever you are whatever you find out that you are and it's all going to be unfolding in the next few years we love it we would love to have you be our straight daughter we would love to have you be our lesbian daughter you're going to be our daughter you're our daughter and we're right. finding out now it's puberty it's a very exciting time we're finding out who you are and who you're going to love and who you're going to be as a grown up right and it, Any one of these things is great and awesome and we love you. Love you lesbian, love you straight, love you bi, love you whatevs. But you have to frame it positively. And you should and you can't put it on her, whatever decision you make. It's not a decision she's making. Her sexuality is with her, not the other way around.
3: Right. No, you're absolutely absolutely right. Sam's so glad I called you. Because I I never would have, you know. I had these conversations with my
1: son and they were difficult.
3: (laughs) Uh, (laughs) It is it is she, I mean, she's very, very close to her dad, um, which,
1: <laughs> which is kind of a lesbian trait. I gotta say, I, know. I no, was really and, close and to I my mom. Like
3: my, my heart of hearts, I, I'm sure she is. If she's, if she's not a lesbian, she's bi. And, and again, I, I don't care because I love her and I want her to be happy. Um, and. You know, I just watch her being tortured by oh, yeah, that's awful. society and it's killing me.
1: The thing you have to avoid is saying it in a way like, even if you do this horrible thing that will disappoint me, I will love you still. Which is sometimes how a queer kid will read, whoever you are, I will love you anyway.
3: Right, and that's exactly what I'm worried I'm doing to her.
1: <laughs> and, so, and, you need to, and you can get out in front of that. You can say... It's not like I will love you any more or less if you're a lesbian. Like I love you. You're my daughter, and you might be my right. lesbian daughter when you grow up, and you might be my straight daughter, and it won't make a dime's bit of difference to me. Right? They're both wonderful. Straight is awesome. I'm straight, and straight's pretty great. And you know what? Lesbians awesome too. And I have great lesbian friends. And if you don't fucking make some, because you need some adult uh, lesbians around. My
3: best friend around. is a <laughs> my best friend's a lesbian. So is, is she was for the Super Bowl. Oh yeah, she and her her partner. Oh, no, they're married. They got married in New York. Um, They were actually over for a big Super Bowl party.
1: Okay, and your daughter is around them and knows the score.
3: Yes, absolutely. Awesome. We watch her moods a lot more closely now. Um, Oh, and she's an
1: 11-year-old girl. You're going to have plenty of moods to watch over the next few years, based on my observations (laughs) of my friends with uh, teenage girls.
3: I know. know. She's she's a handful. But she's – you know she's really she's incredible she's creative she's really sarcastic and really dark so she's you know she's kind of the queen of of one of the fringe groups and she's got all her little uh, her little guy friends around her
1: good she's so. a lesbian i know <laughs> <laughs> okay well if you know that to be true i think you should you, you the, the one thing you said that i really that i wrote down in my notes was We've had no conversation about that. That You've had the sex talk, but you left out lesbians and gays. Right. From a, a sex talk with a queer kid, which isn't having them the sex talk that that queer kid or any kid needs because even a parent who doesn't think their kid could possibly be queer is often having a sex talk with a queer kid. They just don't realize it yet.
3: And you're absolutely right. And it never it – didn't, it didn't click until I made the call that I had a sex talk that works for me. In my sexuality.
1: And what she might have come I, away from it with – from hearing that talk from you is this, these are my parents' expectations. Even though I'm screaming, I'm never going to get married. I don't want to have kids. Hello. Are you listening? What they're telling me is their expectation is that I'm going to be heterosexual when I grow up, that I'm going to have opposite sex sex. I'm going to have an opposite sex partner. And so they can't really see me and they're not really listening as I say, look how dikey I am. And I'm never going to get married, I'm never have kids. Hello, mom, mom, hello, mom.
3: Right. Oh, God. Oh, God. You see that. It's so obvious, too.
1: So you need to go to her and say, let's have, a, let's have sex talk 2.0 because sex isn't just reproductive biology, which is what we covered last time, and heterosexuality. Sex is all these things. And you will fall somewhere on this spectrum, and you will be happy, and you will be loved because we will always be your parents, and we will always love you.
3: That is an excellent idea, and I'm going to take you up on that.
1: Well, I don't want to have the sex talk with you. I'm not asking you to have this talk with me. <laughs> no. You have that talk with her. No, don't I mean, take no. me up on it. Go do what I told <laughs> you.
3: It's the, it's, a, it's the absolute exact right thing I need to do to support my kid.
1: Okay. Good luck,
3: Mom. Thank you so much, Dan, for calling me.
1: This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature and featuring audio versions of many New York Times bestsellers. For listeners of this podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service. One audiobook to consider is The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood, read by Claire Danes. Uh, It's available at Audible. If you want to see what a dystopian, religious right, Christianist future looks like, Margaret Atwood nails it in this book. Don't watch the movie. movie sucks. Listen to the book as narrated by Claire Danes. For that free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash savage. That's com slash savage.
5: Hey, Dan. I am a 30-year-old queer raised in a fundamentalist Christian church, of which my parents are still avid followers. Somehow I find that I found the courage to leave the church and come out when I was 16. But, man, do I wish I'd had your advice for dealing with disapproving families around when I was coming out. After almost 15 years of the relationship being on their hurtful terms, I'm finally demanding the respect from them that I deserve. It took a year of not speaking to them, but now they're finally realizing that they could lose me and are trying to um, stretch outside their comfort zone. I always knew anything like Flag or Lead With Love would get thrown out the window immediately for not being Christian enough, but they seem to have found some resources that I'd never heard of before. All of a sudden, I got this email that was almost creepy how different they sounded, begging forgiveness for their behaviors over the years, purporting to understand why I cut them off and promising that things would be different now. So I find out that the material they found was a book called First Steps Out and a video lecture for Gateway Church, gatewaychurch.com slash sexuality. Basically, the resources are for Christians who have loved ones struggling with same-sex attraction, quote-unquote. But everyone they talk to that is struggling happens to have eventually chosen not to pursue same-sex relationships with God's help. Not exactly ex-gay stuff, but pretty close. They do harshly condemn Christians for acting hatefully towards LGBT folk, and they have first-person accounts of what it feels like to be rejected by family and friends. This part's awesome. But then they make sure to point out that the hurtful behavior pushes people away from God instead of drawing them closer. I find this to be problematic as a focal point. One could interpret this to be more about saving people's souls than about learning acceptance and unconditional love. I think my parents' remorse and empathy is genuine now, but what happens in two or five years when I still love women and still believe the Bible is a book of parables, not the literal word of God? Do you think I should trust it?
1: The strength you must have had 14 years ago when you were 16 to come out to a family like that as a lesbian, um, I'm in awe of it. And that you put up with their bullshit for 14, 13, 14 years is amazing. And I'm glad you finally stood up to them and made it clear you would have nothing to do with them if this bullshit continued and let her experience, other listeners who may be in similar situations, be a lesson to you that it is when you stand up to your family and say, you can have your hate or you can have me but you can't have your hate and me at the same time that families come around. Make them fear your rejection. Don't live in fear of theirs. Make your family fear yours. Go find – somebody sent me this link the other day. Uh, this wonderful quote from Armistead Maupin, there's your biological family, he says in the Tales of the City books, and then there's your logical family. If your biological family blows, they are not your logical family. Go find your logical family and fuck your biological family. Tell them to go fuck themselves. Often when a queer kid, a queer adult child gets to that place where they're like, you know what? You guys have had a decade to get over this and you're still being shits. See you Bye. That inspires the family to start to get over their shit. Okay? And so this caller eventually did that. She's like, you know what? I put up with this long enough, not going to see you. And lo and behold, mom and dad make a big shift. They didn't come all the way around, they landed in this horrible middle place. The, you know, one of these huggy, touchy, feely. Rock band douchebag. I watched the video. Douchebag preacher with a t-shirt on with a rock, with a guitar on it. Look, the emerging church, right? And the message he's preaching up there on the altar about gay people is basically God hates fags now with hugs. Whatever, it's still hatred. You know, there's, they still have this in their head that there's something sick and sinful and perverse about you, something wrong. And if they can just be really terrific Christians. To you, if they could be nice and loving, we tried hateful asshole. That didn't work. Let's try nice and loving. Maybe that will work. Neither will work because there's nothing wrong with you. You are a lesbian and whether they hate it or whether they hate you, whether they love it, whether they love you, it's not going to change it. I think though that you should meet your parents where they're at right now. They found a different interpretation of the scriptures that allows them to be nice and kind and loving and considerate. Take that – Yes, for an answer. It is still kind of being loved conditionally. They're loving you in anticipation in the hope that by loving you, they can change you. By hate, they, they tried hating you and it didn't change you and they moved. Let them try loving you in an effort to change you. Maybe they'll move again. Maybe they'll move to just fucking loving you. And maybe you should put that on the table as your expectation over the long term if they want to continue to have a relationship. Don't go to these fucking churches with them. Don't read any of the literature. If they are nice to you for a couple of weeks and then clear their throats and try to bring this shit up about same-sex attraction, put your coat on and walk out the door. It's just God hates fags with hugs and you're not going to be hugged by a God hates fagger like that douchebag preacher in his rock and roll t-shirt with his headset on or your parents. Make them fear your rejection. They already do and you've leveraged that fear to this better place and it is a better place. Engage with them and you may be able to leverage their love for you to get them to the best place of all, which is the realization that this is how God made you. You can't see the face I just made. When I said how God made you, I kind of made this face like God didn't make anybody, but whatever. But how God made you is probably what your parents need to think. Good luck. And again, other listeners out there, if your relationship with your parents sounds like the relationship this caller had with their parents 10 years ago, where they were hateful and disapproving and obnoxious and everything was on their terms, do what this caller did, but do it sooner. Walk. Walk. Tell mom and dad you're not going to see them, not going to hang out with them, not going to have anything to do with them. Line up your logical family, find support, find people you can lean on who can lean on you too and bolt and they will come around because as I've said 10 million times to young queers on this show, the only leverage you have over your parents is your presence and you have to be willing to use it on the homophobic ones. This episode is brought to you by adamandeve.com. For a limited time only, Adam and Eve will let you pick three free adult DVDs with your order. Go to adamandeve.com and order almost any one item at 50% off. Choose a new adult toy, lube, or almost anything from over 18,000 adult products. Then at checkout, enter offer code SAVAGE and you'll get to choose three free adult DVDs. That's right. You get to choose your own DVDs. Plus, receive a free mystery gift and free shipping on your entire order. Choose from all kinds of genres for both gay and straight folks. And now you can also shop on your mobile phone at Adam and Eve. That's adamandeve.com and enter Savage at checkout.
0: Hi, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old straight female living in Denver. My question is how do I get motivated to date? I've been single and celibate for three years since I broke up with my on-again, off-again boyfriend for the last time. I've been pretty happy living on my own and, uh, become quite comfortable with it. My friends think I should try and meet someone and I don't disagree, but I haven't been able to get it together and make the effort to date for more than a year. I think I might have a lower sex drive than others and I'm not afraid of being alone. So those things don't seem to be sufficiently motivating. I'd love to hear your thoughts and recommendations. Thanks.
1: Joining me today to to field this question is Eric Kleinenberg. He's the author of Going Solo, The Extraordinary Rise and Surprising Appeal of Living Alone which The Atlantic called 2012's most conversation-generating book about how we live now, and uh, it just came out in paperback. Thanks for jumping on the phone with us, Eric. My pleasure. So uh, what I thought was interesting, why I wanted to ask you about this call in particular, was her saying I'm not afraid of being alone. So many people are. And in in writing your book about living alone and about how so many people are now and how uh, prevalent it is, did you find that there were a lot of people who were living alone and then realized that that was what they wanted, but were sort of the, far more the culture than had thought. convinced them they were supposed to be in terror of this prospect of being alone?
2: Yeah, yeah far more people than I thought uh, said it was appealing to them. That, that's why I called the, the, the book the, Going solo the, the Extraordinary Rise and Surprising Appeal. We have this idea that people who live alone uh, are, are lonely and sad and miserable. Uh, surely they're surrounded by cats, uh, and they're probably you know, going to turn into psycho killers uh, if they're not checked in some way. And of that is true. Well, the reality is that, first of all, massive numbers of people are living alone today. Uh, it's about 33 million people in the United States. I'm talking to you from Manhattan, where one of two households is a one-person household, and it's, it's above 40% where you are in, in Seattle. So, so it's very widespread. Uh, and people are, are discovering that there's a real distinction between living alone and being alone. Uh, People who live alone tend to be much more socially active than people who are married. They're they're more likely to spend time with friends and with neighbors, more likely to go out at night and and be in bars and restaurants and cafes, and and even more likely to volunteer in civic
1: organizations. But what this caller seems to be struggling with is the stigma that she's alone. She doesn't – she feels like, I don't feel like I'm unhappy alone, but my friends look at me like I'm a loser because I don't have anyone. And – how does she get past that? What does she say to her friends? And is this a process that you that you actually saw other people struggling with who were alone, that this they came to this realization that, no, this is what I want. But does the culture allow people to want this or to be public about this is what they want?
2: Yeah, it is a real struggle. So of all the things that the, the culture allows us to, to do and to want now, uh, being single and living alone is is really not one of them. So despite the fact that so many people are going solo – uh, there's, there remains this stigma, and, and people feel that when they spend time with certain friends and certain family members, though not all, uh, they, th- their identity is spoiled. You know, the concept of stigma me- literally means that you know, your, your identity is spoiled. When people see you, they define you through this very narrow thing. You know, you, you, you are black and not a full person, you're gay and not a full person. Uh, people who are single perceive themselves to be stigmatized in this way. And they'll say, you know, I, I go to Thanksgiving or Christmas to be with my family. And there's certain people who come up to me and all they want to talk about are all the people they could fix me up with, uh, how they could fix me, essentially. But um, really, these, are, these people, I think, are projecting their own anxieties onto to people who are single.
1: So what would your advice to this girl be who called, who's worried about whether being alone is what she wants, but it does sound like what makes her happy?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I I think that it's, it's hard, but at some point uh, she's going to have to explain to people around her that she's found a way to to, to be relatively happy and and to live pretty well, even without having a, a permanent you know intimate partner who is there every day. Uh, in fact, that's a really viable and legitimate way to live. One way to to, to explain it is simply by giving the numbers to tell you know, friends and family look what I'm doing is is something that enormous numbers of people to do in fact about half of american adults are are single today but the numbers are probably not going to be totally persuasive
1: so give them the book you should give them the book give Them going solo by eric kleinberg
2: that's that's my favorite solution. But the other thing that that I, that, I, that I have to say is, you know, one of the one of the reasons there's this stigma around living alone is people presume that it means being lonely and miserable. And one of the most powerful things that I heard from the interviews I did with hundreds of people who are going solo today uh, is that, as lonely as they can sometimes feel being alone, all of them said that there's really nothing lonelier than living with the wrong person. There's nothing lonelier than being in a relationship that doesn't work, and anyone who's ever been in a relationship and broken up knows that that feeling of loneliness when you're with someone is is even more profound and, and, and difficult than than the feeling of wanting some more connection when when you're on your own. So I think all of us are trying to live a life that that feels better and that works well. We, you know, we, we're all searching for something. Um, that that's right. And the difference in the world today is we're just reluctant to settle for a relationship that, that doesn't work and that makes us feel lonely and alienating. We, we have a, another option and that's to, to go
1: solo. I have to ask you, of course, before I let you go, do you live alone?
2: <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I'm married uh, I ha- I have, and I have two young children. So my wife calls this my fantasy book. <laughs> and, and, you know, I've got to say, you're, you're, you're a father also, so you probably can appreciate this. You know, you, I, I, I go to drop my kids off in school in the morning, and, and now all the other parents know that I've written this book. And, and you know, they, they all come up to me and say, you know, God, I, I really do fantasize about having just a little bit more time and space to myself.
1: That's what book tours uh, are for.
2: Exactly. Everybody needs to write books <laughs> but,
1: and go on book tours for some of that alone time.
2: In those in those hotels.
1: Curious what your wife thought of the the subtitle, "The Extraordinary Rise and Surprising Appeal of Living <laughs> Alone." Is this a is this a message for me? I mean, look
2: the the I always have to say this when I give talks about the book. Like the, the 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 book is not the case to go solo. You know, my goal is not to have you listen to this conversation and go back home and say to your partner, "You know, I heard the most amazing thing online today," and. Uh, I'm and so I'm maybe, out of here. We should, we should find a, a different way to live. I, I I'm not saying this is this is the the, the best way to live. I, I you know it doesn't really matter to me whether you know you choose to settle or settle down or or set yourself free. There's lots of good ways to live. I, I think the the point for me is um, this is this incredibly common, uh, but very new way to live, and that we're incredibly judgmental about it in in, in, in ways that your your caller understands. And I I think we we need to recognize that this is a a pretty viable choice in in the world today. So probably all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, fantasize a little bit about the the other way to live. So how many people who are married or in long-term relationships don't have some fantasy about what it would be like to be single for a time? And how many people who are single don't think about what it would be like to be coupled? We're complex and full of all kinds of, of of needs and, and desires, and we should be honest when we talk about this.
1: Eric Kleinenberg, author of Going Solo, The Extraordinary Rise and Surprising Appeal of Living Alone, also professor of sociology at NYU. Thanks for jumping on the phone with us today, Eric. It's
2: been my pleasure. Thank you.
6: Hi, Dan. I am a polyamorous woman um, who travels quite a bit, and I was stationed in my workplace for a month in a town that I was not familiar with, and I didn't know anyone. I was working... 70 hours a week, and I met this guy. We hit it off really well. I really enjoyed his company, the conversation, the wine, the walks, everything was fantastic, except that I really wasn't that into sleeping with him, but I thought I'd give it a try. And I did, and in the morning, I was like, ooh, that maybe wasn't the best idea. But he was my only friend, and I really loved hanging out with him, and so we kept sleeping together. And I still really, really enjoy his company, And I'm going back to this town in a couple weeks and I'm wondering what's the best way to avoid having to sleep with him? (laughs) Was this a great opportunity to engage in a little white lie and tell him I'm having a sexual fast and I really want to spend time and cuddle and have the emotional intimacy but I just don't want to have sex? Or do I need to tell him that I really like him as a friend but I don't want to be sexual? Does lying make
1: me an asshole? A little white lie would not make you an asshole. What would make you an asshole is saying to him, I really don't want this relationship to be sexual, but I would like to cuddle and have emotional intimacy and spend time together. That would be an asshole thing to do because he may feel – if that's what you want. It's really hard to tell from your call what it is you want from him. Do you want that kind of emotional intimacy and that cuddling and all that cozy, cozy shit without the sex? You're going to have to let that go. Right, because that would be an asshole move. He might be willing to settle for the cuddling and the emotional intimacy, and whatever. When what he wants is all that in the sex too, and then be miserable and feel like you know, just feel awful about the whole situation. Just feel tortured and rejected. So what you should tell him is, I enjoy your company. Let's hang out. Let's spend time. And then dot dot dot. Here's here you can drop a white lie. Or here you can tell the truth. You can say, really want to see you. Looking forward to hanging out. I'm seeing someone now and for the time being, we've decided to have a closed relationship. So I'm not going to be able to sort of mess around when I see you. I hope that's not a problem. Period. That's your white lie. Or you can just tell them the truth. It was fun. It was great. Uh, I don't really want to continue with the sexual aspect of our relationship. I'd like to be friends. Friends hang out. Friends don't cuddle. Friends hang out, friends don't kiss and friends aren't emotionally intimate in that way. So don't do any of that shit with him, not the sex, not the rest of it. So white lie or straight up truth, your call, I think you can trust him with the straight up truth frankly. I think you should just tell him the truth. Liked you, always remember that weekend or week, whatever it was, fondly but not interested in pursuing it. sex with you anymore. So let's hang out but let's not be sexual.
4: Hey, Dan. Just quick comment on the stress study results. Um, I like your assessment, and uh, I think that there's some plausibility to it, but I wanted to add that uh, it seems to me that the amount of processing that a person uh, does to come out as gay or bisexual is pretty significant. And instead of uh, suggesting that the reason the stress levels are higher for heterosexual individuals, males, is because uh, because they're trying to protect their Heterosexual identity. I think it's very plausible that that for folks that have done that amount of inner processing and um, self-awareness, that that kind of inner work uh, can really contribute to a lower stress levels and a higher quality of life. And uh, I'm I'm fairly certain if you could control your heterosexual uh, population so that you had two groups, one that had done that level of inner work and one that hadn't, you'd find some results. Thanks.
7: Hi Dan, um i just when I'm thinking about it <laughs> and listening to them, like I can think of a lot of reasons why gay guys are happier than straight guys and one of them being, you know, there's no pressure on gay couples getting married. There's no pressure on them having kids. There's no pressure on them moving in together or changing the relationship or going forward in that way that no one ever puts these pressure on people. There's no worry about pregnancy. There's tons of reasons. And I mean, it just outside of that, there's even just expectations I mean you look at a gay gay uh, men relationship and lesbian relationships and you go same thing the um, guys decided of course looking at other women or other men would be okay for generally for for gay people and looking at pornography would be totally acceptable but in straight relationships it's a question you know so there's a difference between men and women and when guys are just dealing with guys it's a lot easier and Probably the biggest reason is, for me at least, was was grinder. You guys have grinder, we don't. And when I found out about <laughs> you guys having grinder, I, I wish I was gay. It's just too bad. I'm just not attracted to men.
1: And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the podcast. If you'd like to record a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. You can also comment on each and every Lovecast at thestranger.com slash Lovecast. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Youth. We'll be back at you next week with another installment of Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading